Resurrection Sunday. There's that ancient phrase, He is risen, He is risen indeed. And we get so excited about Resurrection Sunday. But for a Christian, isn't every day Resurrection Sunday? I mean, don't we celebrate that He's alive every single day? But today we get to put a focus on it. We get to, we get to really look at it and emphasize it. And, and uh, what I want to do is... Uh, you know, we, we're always about teaching the Bible and what, what's really there and how do we make sense of it and how do we live it out. Today I want to look at a passage about this weekend from Good Friday, Friday to Resurrection Sunday that maybe you're very familiar with, maybe you've read over and you've never even noticed before. But I want to start this morning with Matthew 28, which is actually looking into the resurrection, Right? This is where we started. The video began it this morning, and that did such a good job of bringing us into where we are today. Uh, Matthew 28, starting in verse 5. Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, just as he said. He is risen. He is alive. He said that he would. We can't explain how it happened other than the supernatural power of God at work. But sometimes when we can't explain those things, we kind of gloss over them and maybe don't give them the attention that they really deserve. That statement, he is risen, changed the world. It changed everything. That's why 2,000 years later, we keep saying it. It's why we set aside a Sunday every year to focus on it. What it means is that Resurrection Sunday for Christians is the single biggest, most important Sunday of the whole year. Yes, every day we celebrate that Jesus is risen. People have said that that Resurrection Sunday is the Super Bowl for the church. I think the Super Bowl isn't big enough. The Super Bowl happens once a year and then then it goes and it becomes a part of history. The resurrection of Jesus happens every day in our minds and in our memories. He is alive with us every single day. It's the day that we celebrate that Jesus, God's only son, the one who went to the cross for our sins, was raised to new life and walked out of the grave in this earth-shattering, world-changing, supernatural event. Can I explain it to you? I really can't, but I know that God did it. And that's enough for me because I read the rest of the Bible and I know that God can do anything God wants to do. So Jesus died for our sins and God raised him to a new life. That's history-making news in and of itself, but I wonder if we fully grasp the implications of what happened that first weekend. I wonder if we've really looked through the passages in the New Testament, in the Gospels, understanding what was going on, because there's this event that is clearly recorded. It's right there in the Gospel of Matthew, yet it's almost never spoken of. I've never heard a sermon on it in my life. And I wonder if, if the reason is because we can't explain it. We don't know how it happened. We can't, we can't explain away the events that this verse has. See, the opening of the tomb that day that Jesus was raised from the grave wasn't the only tomb that was opened that day. And the fact that Jesus walked out, he isn't the only one that was raised to new life. And so let's look at Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday the way the Bible actually gives them to us. Not what we think we know, because what you might need to do is let go of a little bit of what you think that you know and what you want to believe and to actually look at what the gospel gives us. So let's go to the gospel of Matthew, if you've got your Bible with you. We're going to go to the 27th chapter. We're going to start in verse 50. This is where Jesus is at the end of his earthly life. 
He has had the last supper with his disciples. He's been betrayed by a kiss from one of the closest people to him. He's been turned over to the Roman authorities. He's been jailed. He's been put before some mock trials. Uh, they have released Barabbas instead of releasing him. He has been scourged and flogged and beaten to within an inch of his life, and he's been made to carry his cross to the outskirts of the city. He's been nailed to the cross, dropped in the ground. He has shared some words with people, and this is the end. This is the very last part of Jesus' earthly life. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the whole earth shook and the rocks were split. With the order of events that happen in the New Testament, we can lay side by side the events that happening in the temple and in Jerusalem at the same time that Jesus is on trial and that he is taken away to be hung on the cross. And sometimes the Bible gives us these times. It was the third hour. It was the sixth hour. And that's not the way we tell time. We think, well, that doesn't make any sense. That doesn't do me any good. But actually, it's incredibly important stuff. There's no detail in Scripture that isn't important. Because what we can know is that at the very same time that Jesus is breathing his last and giving up his spirit, there's something happening in the temple inside the city of Jerusalem. And that is that the priests are offering the evening sacrifices. This being an important week, those sacrifices were lambs. At the very same time that Jesus breathed his last breath and died, they were sacrificing lambs in the temple. And verse 41, 51 says, Behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The other thing that we can understand then is that inside the temple, it wasn't just the priests that was the people there for the sacrifice. The people that had brought the sacrifices so that their sins could be atoned for. The temple was full. It was full of faithful worshipers. And what God does at this moment that Jesus gives up his life, Yields his spirit, the Bible says. What God does is tears that temple curtain in two, right down the middle from side to side. And why was it important that it happened then? Because they couldn't say that a person had cut it with a knife. They couldn't say that a foreign army had come in or an intruder had come in and ransacked the temple. Nope, as they were all there, that temple tore from top to bottom, from heaven to earth. And God was only getting started. See, this temple was huge. The book of Exodus, chapter 30, talks about how big the temple was and how big this curtain was. It says the curtain itself was 30 feet wide and 60 feet high, and it was the fabric was the width of a man's hand. So you've got to figure four to five inches thick of fabric, 30 feet by 60 feet by four or five inches. Exodus says it took 300 men to lift the curtain. This was a huge piece of furnishing furnishings in the holy of holy they called it the veil of covering and the reason that it's called the veil of covering is because what it covered was what they believed was where god lived here on earth inside the holy of holies and so they had furniture in there they had they had relics and remnants from their past that reminded them of how god had been with them through the days of their history but there was no one that could go in the holy holy, holy of holies except for one priest the high priest once a year and he would utter the most sacred name for god and they would hope that he would be able to come out again that his sins wouldn't have god strike him down and yet on this day the moment jesus died that veil of covering was torn open so that anyone who had eyes to see anyone who was there suddenly could see the dwelling place of god on earth 
Everything changed because now this area that they had kept separate, the area that they had hidden God from the people, was made available to everyone, and the only one that could have done it was God himself. And it goes on, it says, the earth shook and the rocks split. So not only did this huge piece of fabric tear from top to bottom, but there was an earthquake. And along with the earthquake, the very rocks on top of the ground were split. This is a huge event. We think that it was quiet and Jesus died in obscurity and silence. Jesus was quiet. But the events surrounding him, God made quite a statement. So between the temple curtain splitting, the ground shaking, the rock splitting, what God was saying was suddenly there weren't holy people and the rest of the people. There was just one people and God had his place among all of them. There wasn't Jews and Gentiles and there wasn't differences between people. What, what mattered now was not adherence to religious law and how well you kept the law. What mattered now was what did you believe about who Jesus was, the man who had just died on the cross? Our belief and our relationship in Jesus is what makes the difference. See, God's son, who was the perfect sacrifice, there were sacrifices hap- happening in the temple, but God's son, the perfect sacrifice, had just died outside of town. The very foundations shook. That means the foundations that the temple was on, the foundations that the house that you lived in was on, the foundations of the streets that you walked on and the shops that you shopped in, everything shook. It wasn't just right there. It was that entire area. could have been the whole world for all we know, but there was a violent earthquake. And the rocks split in two. And it gets me thinking. I wonder how often we really think about what the death of Jesus means to us. Do you really personalize the idea that the reason that Jesus went on the cross is because we're sinners, you and I? Do you allow yourself to take that understanding in? And I have to wonder if the earthquake and the rock splitting aren't significant, that that's what's supposed to happen to the foundations of our lives, the world that we live in, everything that we hold dear, all the things that we think are, are, are ours and we hold on to. I wonder if God isn't trying to shake all of that free of us in the death of Jesus. See, when, when we're faced with the truth of Jesus dying for us, it changes everything. Because what we do is we build these hearts of stone, and, and the one that we really keep our hearts from is God. When God says in the Bible that he wants us to give all of ourselves to him, to love our neighbors as ourselves, if we don't want to do that, our heart begins to turn to stone. And at the death of Jesus, even the rock split and the veil was torn. And I have to wonder if that's not the point that God wants us to come to. That the foundations of everything that we have, everything that we hold, everything that we believe in, I wonder if he doesn't shake all of that. Because Jesus died for the sins of you and for me. But we really don't do that very often. Because I think if we did, here's what would happen. We would realize that we build a curtain. We build a veil that prevents us from fully experiencing God as well. And rather than keeping people away from God, what we do is we build this wall around us that keeps God away from us. And we think that we can keep our sin from God, that if we don't talk about it, then God doesn't know about it. And, and, and we have our own holy of holies where all the things that we covet and that we so much cherish in this life, we keep them there and we keep them separate. And I have to wonder if the tearing of that veil and the shaking of the earth and the splitting of the rocks isn't God's way of saying, that's what I want to happen to you. Jesus has died and he died for you. But that's not it. It's not over yet. Verse 52, it goes on. 
says the tombs were also opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. That reference, what it means is that when someone who was a faithful Jew, an Israelite who had died uh, being faithful to the law, it says that they fell asleep in the bosom of Abraham. And so that's the explanation here. That, that's why when Matthew's writing it, the people of his time would have understood it. The bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Those two verses have been there all along. But it's amazed me over the last week how many of us have never seen them. Did you realize that when Jesus walked out of the grave that resurrection day, he wasn't the only one? Did you know the gospel of Matthew says that people like you and I who had died did it as well? I mean, think about that. The moment that the temple curtain was torn in truth and the earth shook and the earth's foundations were split, when Jesus died and was raised to new life, other people came back to life as well. He was raised first, but it says that then these people were raised along with him. So what you need to understand about Jerusalem even today Uh, In the city of Jerusalem, no one is allowed to be buried within the city walls. So the cemeteries and the tombs and the crypts and everything are outside in the country. And so when Matthew says that they went into the city, they literally did because they were in the countryside when they walked out of the tombs and they went into the city through the gates. They literally walked from the outside to the inside. Can you imagine the reception they would have gotten by the people who knew they had died? That's why I think we don't talk about it because how do you explain that? The Bible doesn't tell us anymore. People have asked this morning, how long did they live? Where did they go? What did the people think? I don't know. The Bible doesn't say. What the Bible says is the tombs were opened and some of the saints came back to life and went into Jerusalem. And there were eyewitnesses to that fact. To the other, some of the other eyewitnesses, verse 54, the centurions. It says, when the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the son of God. These guys had nothing to gain by Jesus being the king of the Jews. They had nothing to gain. In fact, they had everything to lose by understanding who Jesus really was, much less saying anything about it. Their job was to make sure that Jesus died, to make sure that he was truly dead on the cross, and to make sure that his body was guarded so no one can steal it. These guys weren't a sympathetic bunch, but their response is interesting. Truly, this was the Son of God. We've got a wooden plaque over the door on the way out, and it's got three different languages. It's the three languages that were put on the placard over the head of Jesus on the cross. It says, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. It would have made sense that they would have said, truly, this is the King of the Jews. But they didn't. And Matthew's really clear about that, which, which makes me think that they would have heard from somebody That Jesus was more than just this guy that was a rabble rouser. That there was something about him that was maybe special. When all of these events happened, when all of these events happened, their response, their testimony was not Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, but truly this was the Son of God. Something so phenomenal happened that day that I don't think we can begin to comprehend it. So I take the time to look at all this. It's enough to just celebrate that Jesus is alive, right? That's a feel-good. That's a fun thing. Well, here's the deal. I think that our culture has taken this day, and like has happened with so many things, the Christian church has just given it away. Uh, Deidre was reading last week, my wife was reading last week, that more candy is sold for Easter than is sold for Halloween. Did you know that? Here's the problem. Even in the church, we call it Easter. What does Easter mean? 
Easter is the English version of an old world pagan goddess of fertility. And they celebrated this goddess in the springtime. What does that have to do with the very real risen, he is alive, son of God? So even in the church, I don't know that we fully grasp what it is that's actually happening here. See, for for Jesus-loving, Bible-believing Christians, this isn't Easter. This is Resurrection Sunday. And on that first Resurrection Sunday, it wasn't just Jesus that came to new life. It was other people, people like you and I, who had been dead and buried, that came to new life. So what that tells me is, we don't just have the hope or the promise of new life. We have this historical evidence in the testimony that the resurrection of Jesus leads to new life to those who died and were faithful to God. There's actual evidence that that's what happened. It isn't like we've got this foolish or desperate hope on our part. It's a historical fact witnessed by those that were there with Jesus and those that lived in Jerusalem. So imagine for a moment, what does that feel like? What does it feel like to be sitting at home one day or at at the office one day or going to the market one day and mom or dad or grandma or grandpa or your neighbor who you knew had died because you'd been to the funeral and you'd buried them outside of town a half a mile. Suddenly there they were. What does that do to you? What do you think about it? What does that mean? Because not all of Jerusalem knew that Jesus had died in that moment. I think that Jesus' first words when he comes back and starts making appearance to his disciples and his followers really hold the answer. Every time that an angel came to a person on earth, do you remember what they always said? Fear not. There is something about the supernatural glory of God breaking through the heavens and and face-to-face encountering a person that causes us to be fearful. And the angel said, fear not. So Jesus comes back, and when he returned from the dead, he, he showed himself to more than 500 people, the Bible says. In John 20, verse 21, Jesus says to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Peace. Peace, Jesus says. Can you imagine what they were feeling when those dead folks started walking around Jerusalem? Not peaceful. Could you imagine when people they know for a fact had died and were buried suddenly showed up in town and started having conversations with them? They were not feeling peaceful. And yet what Jesus says is peace. Can you imagine the earthquake? The, the, the foundations of everything shaking and the rocks splitting. Peace is what those people desperately needed. And what strikes me is how much their world is like our world today. We live in such similar environments. See, those folks, they needed peace because they were afraid of their government. They didn't believe that their government really cared about them because they were governed by people from somewhere else. And they were afraid of the soldiers that that government brought to rule over them and to keep order. Those soldiers could do whatever they want with very little explanation. The lives of the people of Israel didn't matter much to the Romans. They were afraid of the Pharisees that had conspired to have Jesus killed. Their own church leaders turned Jesus over. They were, they were afraid for their lives and they were afraid for the lives of their children. They were afraid in peace was the furthest thing from their minds. Like us, they need peace that only Jesus can provide. And so when Jesus comes back after all of that, one of the first things that he says is, peace be with you. Because Jesus didn't come to bring fear. 
As a Christian, you shouldn't be living in fear. On, on Palm Sunday, we talked about how part of the reason they rejected Jesus was because he came to bring peace and, and he rode in on a donkey, on the foal of a donkey. And that was the sign of a ruler who came to bring peace. They wanted a ruler who was going to bring war and overthrow Rome. But no, Jesus was raised to a new life to bring peace so that we could know peace. Real, lasting peace that only comes from him. How often have you heard a Christian who it seems to you like their life is just falling apart at the seams, whether it's financial or a relationship or they've had a loss, maybe the loss of a, a, of a loved one. And you say, how are you doing? And their answer is, you know, I'm doing okay. I don't like how things are going. It doesn't make sense. I'm not sure where I'm going from here, but I'm doing okay. How are you possibly doing okay? I, I don't know. I just have a sense of peace about it. Th- that's a Christian who's leaning into Jesus, not into what they know or what they can accomplish. And Paul talks about that in Philippians 4, 7. He says, And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your mind in Christ Jesus. So fast forward to us, and we live in this world that is so full of chaos and confusion and division and hatred. And Jesus says that he comes that we might have peace. And then you put it on top of it, our own sinfulness, the things that we do that we wish we hadn't, that we regret, the things that we do that if we had a second chance, we'd never do again. And Jesus comes and says, I come that you might have peace. The resurrection of Jesus is about new life and peace. He was crucified as a sacrifice for our sins. And God raised Jesus to a new life so that we could have a new life in him. Not a better life, but a completely different life, a new life in him, a life that begins with that peace that passes all understanding. Does it make sense? It doesn't. Can you explain it? You can't. It's kind of like not being able to explain how Jesus walked out of the tomb that day or why the other people whose tombs had been opened walked out. The only answer we have is, I don't know, but God is good. A peace that Jesus says will guard our hearts and our minds in him against all of the traps and all the plans and all of the evil in the world around us when we accept him as our savior. When we live for him, we find ourselves living in peace. And sometimes it's a peace that we don't even understand. But here's the thing. I don't like to think that my sin caused Jesus to go to the cross. I don't like to think that I'm that bad a guy. And yet I know that it's true because I know who I really am. And it was your sin also that caused Jesus to go to that cross. You probably don't want to think about it, but the fact is he died for you. And until we accept and understand that, his resurrection doesn't mean nearly as much. Because when God raised Jesus to a new life, God offers us the chance at a new life as well. That we don't have to live in the regret and the guilt of the past. So I don't know where you are with Jesus today. I don't know where your relationship with him is. Maybe, maybe you're a, a, an intellectual skeptic. Maybe you've spent your whole life following him. Maybe you're just coming to the point where, yeah, you know what, Jesus, I might be ready to give my life to you because I've made a mess of it to this point. I'm done trying to do it on my own. That piece he's talking about, I want some of that. Well, here's what I've got to say. Don't let another day pass. Don't let another day pass doing the things that you've been doing that take you away from Jesus. Don't let another day pass where you're hiding behind the curtain. Don't let another day pass thinking that your sin isn't already known to him. Don't let another day pass not allowing God and the resurrection of Jesus to shake the foundations of everything that you think you know and believe and can count on and to split the rocks. Maybe the most difficult would be your heart that you're keeping away from him. 
If you haven't accepted God's free gift of salvation in the death and the resurrection of Jesus, please do. It's as simple as saying, Jesus, thank you for what you did for me. I believe. And then you begin to live for him. And if you are living for him, you know, continue to do so and accept that peace that he gives us. Because really what he asks us to do is to not die for him. He asks us to live for him. After all, he died so that we might live. And that's the celebration of today. So why do we celebrate today? We celebrate that Jesus is alive. And because Jesus is alive, we can really live. We can know peace that we can't come upon any other way on earth. So my prayer for you, my hope for you, is that you don't keep putting things off, that that you don't say that tomorrow is going to be a better day. Don't let another day pass. Don't keep hiding behind the curtain or the wall that you build between you and God. Let God split that wall in two and accept Jesus and live for him. After all, he died and God raised him from the grave that we could truly live in him. Let's pray. God, thank you for what you did in Jesus that we can't do for ourselves. Thank you for the way that he willingly went to the cross to die for our sins. Thank you, God, that that he did what we can't. And then on, on the third day, you raised him from the grave. Again, something that we can't do and that we can't explain or understand, but you did it. And he's alive, and he's alive for us. God, he died to pay the price for our sins and you raised him from the grave that our sins could be forgiven and that not even death had power over us. And that is truly a reason to celebrate because Jesus is alive. We might live in him. God, thank you so much. Thank you just doesn't seem to be enough. But God, we give you thanks for all that you have done and all that you are. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know how you're feeling about your life right now. I, I don't know how you feel about the situation or the circumstances. I'm not sure where you're at with Jesus, but here's what I know. If you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, the power of God that raised Jesus from the grave is alive in you. The same power that raised Jesus from the grave is alive in you. And, and so when Jesus said, as, he, God, as the Father has sent me, so I send you, here's what you get to do. Now you get to go and you get to live for him. Knowing whatever you face, you've got the peace of Jesus in you, you have the love of Jesus in you, and you have the one who gave his life that your sins could be forgiven living in you. And that's more power than any one of us can muster on our own. 